Gracious Lord, we ask that you would fulfill that prayer we have just sung. That you who are the fount of every blessing would pour out that blessing upon us gathered here. That you who are the Lord of mercy would have mercy upon us gathered here. That you who are the Lord of life would grant life to those who are gathered here. That you would simply give us what you desire to give, which is your very self. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Please be seated. Luke says, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That is a really stunning statement, uh, an incredibly stunning statement, and it's a glorious one. Uh, we read that the very first impact that the giving of the Spirit to those first disciples was this absolute amazement and perplexity. What does this mean? Now, this amazement and perplexity was a good thing. It was like a, a take your breath away kind of thing. Um, and it was an attractive thing. They were drawn to it. This question was simply evoked from them. It sort of had a, both a whoa and a wow kind of impact, right? All together. Oh, that the Church of Christ could evoke such response from those around it, right? Oh, that Christ the Redeemer could evoke such a response among those around us. That's the hope of this day. That's uh, hopefully the reality of this day. Now, to be fair, this day is a unique day. This story that we have just read is a unique story. This is the first and the greatest of the outpouring of God's Spirit. It has changed the cosmos forever, right? This day is unrepeatable in human history, so we don't expect the same thing to happen to us. We expect similar things to happen to us, Lord willing, and by His mercy. A unique event. It was a massive, visible, and audible event. Remember what Luke says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, the 120, were all together in one place, most likely that upper room yet again, as we read from Acts chapter 1. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it, the sound, filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
right? This wind-like sound reverberating in this upper room. Wow, right? And then divided tongues as of fire, something visible appeared to them and rested on each one of them, not just the 12, the 120 who were gathered there, the 120. Now, obviously, it was the sound of the wind and the sight of the fiery flames that drew the attention, but it was the transformation of the disciples that truly amazed them. Again, that's what Luke tells us. He says, they, the disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's the miracle. The Spirit empowers them to speak in a language that is not their own. And they, he says, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together, and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak, them, the disciples, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not these all Galileans? Are not all these hicks from the north? Right? Uneducated people ordinary people speaking in languages they have no rights to know. They couldn't have learned, but they're speaking, right? And we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, right? Talking about Jesus, talking about what God had done in and through Jesus. And then we read that great line, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, uh, what does this mean? <laughs> wow. See, it was the presence of the Spirit, the gifting of the Spirit, the coming of that Spirit, the empowering of that Spirit to do what they could not do on their own uh, that allowed this ordinary group of, of folks to do something that they had no right to do. It was the Spirit who drew the crowd but again, it was the messengers almost more than the message that amazed them, right? Are not these Galileans? <laughs> and yet, we hear them do what they're doing. There's the amazement. It's the transformation of that ordinary group of people. What does this mean? How am I to understand what's going on here? And what am I to do with this? Right? What does this have to do with me? That's the question that was evoked from that crowd that day. And the good news for us is this. Peter stood up and answered those questions. They were not left perplexed and amazed. They were instructed as to what this means and what they were to do with it. So I don't want to go on and finish the story. I want to go on very briefly and finish the story because it's a long story. You go home today and read this. I mean, it's a day to read this story, a day to soak it up, right? But listen again. Here's what 
Luke goes on, it says, Peter, standing with 11, lift up his voice and address them. The crowd asking that question. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. I am going to answer those questions, folks, right? And he goes, give ear to my words. And then that's what he says. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, he quotes, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter addresses a group of Jews gathered for the feast, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, and he goes back into their scriptures, Joel, the prophets particularly, and grounds what is happening in the story of Israel. Now, he could have gone to Ezekiel. He could have gone to Isaiah. He could have gone to Zechariah. He could have gone to Jeremiah, but he went to Joel, one of the prophets among many of the prophets who had given this promise that the God of Israel would one day pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And at the heart of that story, was this reality, that the creator of all, the one who covenanted himself with Israel for the sake of his creation and revealed himself over time uh, to this people for the sake of the nations, by the time he comes to the age of the prophets late in their life, finally reveals what it is that he has been all about. What it is that he desires to do more than anything else. And that is to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Wow. Wow. Take a step back from that and begin to analyze that, and you can understand what this promise of the Father is all about. I think the reality is this. The basic theological statement you can make is this, that the one who made us in his image made us for himself. That's the bottom line theological statement that the Spirit's gift is all about. He made you for himself. The one who made us in his image did so so that he might one day unite himself to us and with us through his son and the gift of his spirit. That's the promise of the Father. The one who created us, who made us in his image, did so so that he might draw us into his very being and into his doing, his action in creation for the sake of his purposes for creation. That's the bottom line that the prophets were saying. This creator has now acted in creation to fulfill his dreams for that creation. He has poured out his spirit 
upon all flesh. He has united himself with some who are made in his image. Whoa. Peter is saying, in essence, the reason you are attracted to this is because this is your destiny. You are drawn to this because this is the reason you have been made. You have been made to receive this spirit. <laughs> you have been made to be drawn into this life and this work. <laughs> and this is your invitation. That's where Peter starts. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, you've asked me the question, what does this mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means, but I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to tell you how did it come about? Why now? Rather than some other time. And he goes on, he speaks about, again, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his life. It's all about his death. It's all about his resurrection. Remember, this is 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So this is what he does. And we read again in, in Acts, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So you got to remember, uh, Jesus did not live in a corner. He did not hide what he was doing. He was all over the map in Judea and Galilee. And these folks knew it. They knew it. They had seen it. They were part of it. I mean, this was an event in that generation. This one was known. We either loved him or hated him, but you knew about him. And he says, you yourselves know the kind of life he lived. The glorious nature of that life. Are you kidding me? This is the one I'm talking about, folks, he says. This is who I'm talking about. He goes on and says, not only his life, I want to talk to you about his death. And he says two things about his death. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, man, when we saw that, we looked at a travesty of justice, this execution of this glorious life. And yet what we have found out is there is a mysterious working of God in and through all of this. It is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? That you would crucify him. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. This was the same crowd that called for his crucifixion 50 days before. The same crowd. They had stuck around for the last feast. Then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a glorious way of saying it. Death had no grip on this one because of who he was and how he died. Death could not hold him. <laughs> wow. 
But there it is. He talks about why this time is all about Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. And he grounds it again in the scriptures of Israel, and then it returns to the resurrection by saying this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's our task now for the rest of our lives. We are to be witnesses to this resurrection and to the risen one. He goes on, but being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's his vindication. That's his reality. He has been exalted, this human being, this Jesus of Nazareth, now in the very presence of God, vindicated by this God, exalted by this God, receiving himself the gift of this spirit. This one now, having received the gift, has poured that gift out. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He is sharing the gift that he himself has been given. That's what's going on here. He's not keeping it to himself. He's sharing. And Peter says, and this means one thing and one thing only. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, absolutely no questions asked, tacitly know this for certain, that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we go again, whoa. Peter is so convinced that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that God himself has vindicated him and exalted him to this position, and that he is the one who has now been revealed as the one who is to be judge of the heaven and the earth, all the living and the dead. He is the one who is the last Adam that alone can give birth to a new humanity. He is the one who has lived this human life as it was meant to be lived and has been vindicated and exalted by God, the creator himself, saying, yes. And this is the one that we said no to. This is the one that you rejected and crucify. The dynamic is remarkable. You can almost feel the weightiness as it's come. <laughs> but that's all that Peter says. He just says those two things. This that you're experiencing that you don't understand is all because of the Father's promise given to us is now being fulfilled, and that fulfillment is all because of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's it. That's the gospel. And then he waits. He waits for them to respond. And they do. And this is what Luke says. Now, when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart. If you have heard the gospel at some point in your life, you know what they felt. You know what it means to be cut to the heart. You know that you are absolutely have been in the wrong. And now you know it. We rejected the one that God has exalted. Wow. Cut to the heart. And then they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Is there anything we can do? Or are we doomed? And the amazing thing again is this. Peter answered that question too. (laughs) And the question was answered, yes. There is something yet for you to do. You are not simply doomed. And this is what he said. He said, uh, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. I want the parents of the baptized kids today to hear that. The promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Two things, he says, you need to do. Repent, which means simply to turn away from a way of life that led you to reject the Christ, led you to say no to this one, and turn to a way of life that exalts him as God has exalted him. That's what repentance is. It's a beginning of an absolutely new way of living, a new life, and it's a gift of God for the people of God those who have been cut to the heart by the gospel and know that this is not of their doing. Repent and be baptized. Allow yourself to be immersed in the waters of baptism so that you will die to that old way of life and be raised into this new way of life and you will receive the gift of the Spirit, he says. Water and spirit come together. We've been going through in the baptismal prep how often water and spirit are worked through the entire story of the scriptures and it comes to reality here in the waters of baptism. Remarkable thing. And you will receive the spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And we embrace that promise. We grab hold of it. And we live into it. 
That is simply the way that the Spirit is given, says Peter. And I just, again, want to stop and look at the frame of that dynamic about the first gift of the Spirit. And notice these things. It has a fourfold kind of thing, and there's a partnership. There's a divine action, and then there's human action. Uh, and the divine always precedes the human, but always energizes the human. But the human action is absolutely vital. So here's the dynamic, fourfold. It is the Spirit's presence and action that attracts the crowd and evokes the question. Just remember that. It's not up to us to make people interested. It's the Spirit's presence within us that does that or it doesn't, right? And if we are not kind of community that is having that question evoked, we need to look at where's the Spirit in our midst? <laughs> and how do we might get more attuned with the Spirit in our midst? But that's the dynamic, the Spirit's presence within a group of ordinary people, right? allows them to do extraordinary things and evokes questions like, what does this mean? What's happening here? That's the Spirit's task. The church, when you hear that question, the church has the privilege to answer the question by preaching the gospel, by simply telling the story that this is what the Creator has always desired to do, to pour out His Spirit upon us and upon you, by the way. And secondly, it's all about Jesus. It's all about through this one that the Spirit is given in the first place. And you need to know about Jesus. And then when the Spirit convicts, and it is the Spirit that convicts, that cuts to the heart, that's what Jesus said in John. He says, the Spirit will convict you of sin and all these other things. That's the Spirit at work. When someone hears the gospel and is cut to the heart, there's the Spirit saying, you're ready. You're ready to repent and be baptized. To learn to live this new life by first becoming incorporated into this new humanity, brought into this new body of Christ. And so the church has a privilege of instructing and incorporating those who come to them. That's the frame of the dynamic, guess what? It's the frame of our calling, right? That's what it means to be the church. We are simply to live our life in such a way, being filled with the Spirit, that we evoke that kind of question from those around us. And again, that is simply who we are called to be. And if and when we have that privilege of having people saying, what is happening here? Then we have the absolute honor to tell them the story to speak about the desire of the Creator for them. That the one who made them has made them for himself and is wanting to unite himself to them. And it's all because of Jesus. Okay. And then when the Spirit convicts, we instruct, we welcome, we rejoice to bring them through the waters of baptism into our family.
That's the calling of the church. That's the dynamic of life that we are to embody. So the question comes to me is, how can we do that? Or how can we be more true to that? And I would just say, let's follow through the story again and look how it ends. Luke comments that 3,000 people, wow, 3,000 people acted on that invitation and were baptized. And then we read, and together with the apostles, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not just the prayer, but the prayers, the way of life, the liturgical calendar of life. And you can understand why. This new way of life has to come with new practices of life, new ways of ordering our life and a devotion to those things because these are the ways to lead to life that leads to the direction and empowering of the Spirit. And the result of all this, Luke says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that's a great hopeful statement. But here's the reality. If you and I are to be that new humanity, if we at Christ's Redeemer are to be the church as this pattern of life has been given to us to be, then you and I have to embrace those practices of life that lead to life. We have to embrace and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Because it's only as we embrace those practices devotedly that we open ourselves to the presence of the Spirit and the directing and powering of that same Spirit. And when we do that, maybe, just maybe, others will say, what does this mean? <laughs> so the question is, not can that happen, but will it happen? Will you and I commit ourselves, individually and corporately, to a way of life that opens ourselves to the presence and direction of the Spirit of the living God. What say you? Let us pray. Just take a moment and uh, answer that question before your Lord.